For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. In this episode, art historian and broadcaster Carrie Scott is joined by Turner Prize-winning artist and activist Lubaina Hemed, writer Lauren Elkin, and Sotheby's Hannah O'Leary for a conversation exploring modern city life from the perspective of female artists. This podcast was originally a live event, time to highlight the touring exhibition Found Cities, Lost Objects, Women in the City, curated by Hamid, which features works from the Arts Council collection. Here's Carrie with more. Hi, I'm Carrie Scott. It, it does feel like there's something wonderful in the air at the moment. You know, exhibitions across the globe are, are beginning to focus on women artists. So frankly, there's cause to celebrate, right? This is a good thing. And we could just sit here and talk about that, but we, we are gonna get into specifically the, the role of female artists in the urban environment in the cities. I'll do a quick introduction of everyone that's here. Lubaina, you are Turner Prize winning. I mean, even talking about her gives me the, I was fine until then. Um, gives me a bit of a thing. Emirate Professor of Contemporary Art um, and a four decade long career dedicated to uncovering marginalized and silenced histories, figures, cultural uh, expressions. Um, so a real honor to be here with you. Lauren Elkin, who is writer, translator, and the author of not one, not two, but now three books. Most recently, Flaner's Women Walk the City and her next book, Art Monsters on Beauty and Excess. And Hannah O'Leary, who is head of modern and contemporary African art at Sotheby's and a woman who really made space and made that market happen in the auction world. So I guess we should probably start with a quick question for everyone, just in a few words. What does the city mean to you? Well, I think it's a, it's a they're awkward places, awkward, difficult places, but then you're kind of free to roam. Hi, Lauren. Yeah, I think they can be places of great freedom and possibility and inspiration. And probably the thing that I like the most about them is that they bring lots of different people from different walks of life and different backgrounds together. And you have to deal with each other in a way that in non-urban spaces, you have a bit more distance from your neighbors and your fellow city dwellers. So I like the sort of points of connection that the urban space makes available. Amanda? Yeah, I grew up in like rural Ireland, so um, not a city dweller by birth. And I know when I moved to London, I found it completely overwhelming. Um, but I find it, in, you know, to echo what Lauren said, inspiring and exciting, especially a city like London. And now I can't imagine living anywhere else. I think it's possibly the greatest city in the world. But also my relationship with the city changed a lot over the last couple of years with lockdown 
with my experience kind of being isolated and yet living in the center of this great urban city. And also with some events that happened in London over, over the last couple of years, things like um, the Sarah Everard murder, um, that made me think about how I, how I relate with the, the city that I live in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration behind Found Cities, Less Objects, and, and why did you feel an imperative to do this now? Well, I make a lot of, especially in the past, I made a lot of work about cities and about architecture more. You know, what would a building be like? What would an auction house be like even if, if women had designed it? What would a train station be like if women had designed them? They'd be different, there'd be less steps, you know, those sorts of things. And so, I don't know, I kind of had this feeling that artists, especially women, feel free to roam around urban environments because they know how to look purposeful and they're a bit braver. And so there are lots of things, lots of things on my mind all the time about how to engage with the city and lots of things on my mind about Mm, what interesting things women have to say that are not just about being a woman, but that are about place or about time or about climate or about love. Um, and the Arts Council collection, which is kind of extraordinary because it was constructed to lend rather than constructed to keep, just seemed like a treasure trove and I wanted to explore it. And with that in mind, that was an easy way to explore it, you know. And were you surprised by what you found there? I was utterly shocked by what I found there. You know, I thought I knew it. I thought I knew what was there because before I'd looked at the collection for, well, sometimes I'd looked because I've got work in the collection. So I looked at thinking, mm, it'd be great if I had more work in that collection, but you know, <laughs> but I look for, other black artists, there's a great thing about that collection that it, they started buying work from black artists way back in the 1980s, um, before Tate or anybody else even thought about it. And so I've had a sort of relationship with that collection because it has the work of Ingrid Pollard and Claudette Johnson, but I'd never sort of come at it from quite that angle before. I, I curated something at Liverpool Art Gallery where I wanted to make a show about meticulous details. And I, um, there's only a small show that I made of other people's work, but I could do that. I think it's a collection you can do almost anything you want with it. It's quite extraordinary. When you were thinking specifically about the show and the work that you wanted to include, I know that you thought a bit about how cities are inherently contradictory, right? They, they give us all this freedom, but there's also these limits in the way that they're built. How did you then bring that into sort of the installations or uh, the way you were thinking of, of, of the beat of the show, the layout? Well, I suppose the thing about the city is that round every corner, there is always a surprise. There are always elements that don't belong together. It's not like the suburbs where there is this, then there's another, you know, this, then this, then this, then this, or even in the rural where you can see I'm, I'm a bit prejudiced against the rural, <laughs> where you can just see a lot of green or a lot of yellow or a lot of hills or a lot of water, you know. There's something about the city where at every turn, either the people, as you say, are different, the languages are different, the buildings are different, 
everything about it is awkward and different. So I wanted to make a show where, I mean, I didn't want it to be what we artists call a dog's dinner. I didn't want it to be a dog's dinner, but I wanted there to be this sort of awkwardness to it and a surprise around every corner. But I, I'm not a great fan, especially recently, of the label. Mm. Um, so I asked a lot of questions in the same way that I did in the, my Tate show. I asked a lot of questions at the beginning of the exhibition, like where do girls play? How many buildings in the city did women build? So we're functioning in all these buildings that no women ever built. So I wanted to ask all those questions to start with and then allow people to feel a kind of sense of their own ability to navigate the, the exhibition. Where do you start, though? Did you start with a piece, a single object, and you thought, okay, this is, this is the beginning? Well, no. In fact, what I started with is that I do a lot of work with an artist called Magda Stavarska Bevan. She was making work about the city of Łódź in Poland. And she took me there to hold her microphone while she was doing some other work. And she was looking for the sites of destroyed synagogues, most of which are now parking uh, lots. And I thought, oh, I'm really interested in how to uncover the hidden. And that was a place that, where the hidden was in a sense in plain sight. And I thought it'd be really great if Magda was in the Arts Council collection, and then I could really build what I'm interested in about her work. I could sort of integrate that in and, well, you know, think about how other, other women that I knew uh, were in this collection, like uh, Lisa Milroy's um, painting, Paintings of Japan, of Kyoto. Um, how I could sort of, you know, have these pieces make conversations, but her work wasn't in the collection. So I carried on with it, but I always had that in my mind. And then lo and behold, really without me having done anything at all, they acquired the work. It took so long to make the show because of all the complications of COVID and my Tate show and everything. And so I'd already begun to think about how the work that women make about cities is often Say, Lisa Milroy is looking for stillness as opposed to movement. Magda's looking for stories of, the stories of people have that know a city really well versus the stories of people that are just visiting and how those two sets of people, if they're in conversation with each other, discover things. So I just kind of knew this about some work and thought that if I hunted down more, then the possibilities were endless. Because there's a bravery about artists when they're in places. We have a sense of purpose. We don't look as if we're lost, even when we are, because we can be admiring something or observing something or taking photos of something. Well, Lauren, that's a great segue to, to your, sort of your research and your book based on the work of female artists and how writers in the city, particularly in the 20th century, defined themselves by walking through the city. And you've invented this whole concept of the, the flaneurs and, and popularizing the way that a woman who defies social norms 
to make her way through the city in a space that was a luxury only for men, right? That we had to claim that. Um, can you define this concept of flaneuse? Yeah, sure, with pleasure. Um, I, when I was a wee baby undergraduate, um, I had become, as lots of undergraduates are, kind of obsessed with the figure of the flaneur, this kind of man about town who just kind of looks at stuff, um, takes in, you know, the spectacle of the city. And I had no problem kind of transposing that onto myself. I was you know, studying abroad in Paris and, you know, as, as you do, kind of making my way around the left bank aimlessly for the first time in my life, like not knowing where I was going or without a specific goal in mind. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm flaneur. And then I was like, well, that's not quite right. I guess I'm a flaneuse. Um, so I, I started looking into the, if there was a history of the flaneuse, I was a good, good little student. Um, and I found that <laughs> in general, um, the kind of real like powerhouse feminist art historians like Griselda Pollock had said, there can be no such thing as a flaneuse. Um, you know, women just didn't have the same access to public space that, that, that the flaneur did, that men did. And I was like, well, okay. You know, at the time I put that aside, but then about, you know, 15 years later when I had finished my PhD, I was like, well, all no disrespect, Griselda, because you're the queen. Um, I still think that there were some women in cities and what were they doing? Even if, you know, they weren't doing this kind of wandering thing the way that men were, surely they were themselves having some kind of deep um, or superficial, you know, but interesting and worthwhile engagement with the city. So I set about um, trying to gather, looking, you know, at what was close at hand. I, I'm a literary critic, scholar, person by training, so I tended to look at 20th century writers like Virginia Woolf and Jean Rhys, and then I, I lived in France for a long time, so I was looking at Agnès Varda or Sophie Cal, um, and I pieced together this kind of, you know, ad hoc improvisational history of women walking in cities, mainly in the 20th century, a little bit into the, the previous, like the late part of the 19th century, and I thought, you know, maybe a flaneuse is, is a woman who's not doing what a man does in a city, but building on, on the specificity of her own experience as, you know, a person who's coming from a variety of different intersectional backgrounds to have a specific experience of the city and then making work with that. So maybe a flaneuse is a person of the female gender or identifying as female who is keenly sort of attuned to the possibilities of the urban I don't know, zone, the urban experience. And, you know, in, in my book, they were then making work on the back of that. But I don't think that you have to be a writer or a filmmaker, or artist to be a flaneuse. Did you, with the, the exhibition, did you sort of address this concept of the flaneuse? Well, I kind of came from the angle that I, if you think about the people, the women in the in the exhibition, they clearly experienced those places in order to make that work. They were not sitting in the village thinking it up. They, you can tell that it, all of them seemed to me to be almost perhaps in disguise, that they perhaps looked as if they were on their way to shop or on their way to pick up children from the school or whatever it is that women are supposed to do in cities, but they, they were exploring. They were disguised as women, but they were artists. I think of us women who are interested in navigating this big, awkward, difficult, sort of dangerous place, but free place. Yes, already in, in that way, I think. 
but it isn't that aimless wandering. Mm. And I'm not sure that women are so great mm. at aimless. Mm. You must really clean, trained yourself mm. to aimlessly wander. Mm. Yeah, oh, completely. Yeah, I mean, we're socialized to be productive, and all of us are, but, you know, women in particular, yeah. to be, like, obedient and, you know, good girls and not go, literally not go astray. Yeah, and I think you need to look as if you're going somewhere in the city. If you, yeah, you want definitely. to keep yourself safe, if we're going to go down that path, then you do need to look as if you there's somebody also at the other end expecting you, you know, all that. But I too try to just, in a sense, encourage us all to reclaim the city. Clearly, 50% of it is ours, even though I think no percent of it did we actually build and only a tiny percent of it did we design. If you go at it in, from that angle, from that sense of seeking belonging, I think you begin to belong in it and, it and it begins to belong to you. Hannah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw the now impossible question over to you because we are here specifically talking about women artists and we just very briefly touched on collections that don't, right? And auction houses aren't great places either to be a woman. But why, why do you think the category matters? Yeah, I, I wish it didn't. I wish we didn't need a category for women artists or shows about women artists. But the fact is that we're still not seeing representation. As Luvena said, there's a shocking statistic that 50% of humankind are women, and yet we're not seeing anywhere near that kind of representation. I went to university to study art history for four years. And in that time, I think I took one elective class for one semester that talked about women artists. And, you know, I, I, I seem to remember we started with Kaufman, Angelica Kaufman. We oh, skipped right. ahead to a few wives of famous artists. Mm -hmm. And then we ended with Tracy Emin. And I thought, well, that was kind of a crash course in <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and, and I'm not sure it's changed that much today. I talked to, to young university students and recent graduates, and, and they still complain of that same problem with how art history is taught internationally. And, you know, the art world is staffed by many, many women. And so you would think that we were the gatekeepers to, to the marketplace and to those um, public collections as well. And yet, um, you know, the, the numbers are, sh are quite shocking. In 2019, we teamed up with Artnet to do quite a great in-depth study on women artists in the marketplace. There was a lot of, I guess, hype saying that, you know, that was the exciting new investment area, women artists. And yet when we did the numbers, it turned out that 2% of art sales in 2019 were represented by women. And there were male artists who alone had sold for more money than all women artists put together. You know, people like Picasso would sell for more than all of the women artists of all time that year. So off the back of that, or as part of, um, partly for the reason of that, we, we did start an annual sale, which is called quite cleverly Women in Brackets Artists. Um, which does platform female artists, but who deal with topics that are specific to women or, or about femininity or feminism, you know, not just women for women's sake. Um, and of course, we're trying to include more women artists into our international sales as well, or our, our standard sales. And something that I was taught at university, or, you know, there's that Linda Nochlin essay, you know, where all the great women artists, or I started my career, not at Sotheby's, but at another auction house. And I was told, well, well women don't buy art. 
you know, and, and those kind of statements are so damaging. And I remember taking it as fact and going, oh, okay, well, then, then there's a reason, but, but, you know, but actually it's, it's all up to all of us to change that landscape. And like I say, we have, we have the power to it. We want to do it. The market is being more responsive, but there's a lot of work involved. It's the same in, in what I do with the, the African art market as well, is that there are a lot of damaging statements and ignorance out there. And, and what you have to do is put the work in and make space and, and build these platforms and, and bring the world's attention to these great artists. And, and I feel like we're, we're, we're getting there, but we're really just at the very beginning. So the idea that this is a, that women artists are the hottest in the market, it's still only a small number of women. It's still, there's still so much more work we can do. Lubina, do you, do you agree with that? Cause you, you know, in the eighties, you were championing black women artists, yeah. which I mean, the stats for, for representation of that work is appalling. Uh -huh. It's appalling as what we just heard Hannah say, but I'm, I'm interested, I'm curious to know if you feel we're making progress. Well, <laughs> from the 1980s in terms of the market, then certainly Claudette Johnson and Sonia Boyce and me, Ingrid Pollard, Veronica Ryan, you know, I put on shows of their work in the 1980s. I mean, I have to say, we didn't actually make the work to sell. We made it to change the world. We never thought about selling it. Then when the uh, YBAs came along and they had, they had thought of this thing about selling work, like, oh yeah, there was a missing <laughs> thing here. We thought we could put this work on in all kinds of venues, you know, and, and it went from being in like, community centers and local places in London to, you know, Battersea Art Center and the ICA and, um, the Africa Centre, well, we were interested in reaching audiences that had come to see a play or come to see a band or come to uh, have a cup of tea or something. And so we were interested in making work that was about talking to people and kind of changing people's minds and, and <laughs> negotiating. And we, we never, never thought about selling. My mother, however, was very clever. And from the exhibition that I put in called Five Black Women at the Africa Centre, she bought a Sonia Boys for £50, oh. <laughs> which is in my diary. <laughs> <laughs> so she was very onto it. Yeah. Um, but yes, now Sonia Boys wins the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale. So things have clearly changed, but it has taken an awfully long time. You know, I'm 67 or something, so it has taken an awfully long time. And, uh, and I'm glad things are changing, but clearly not fast enough. And I don't think it is about the amount of money. I think it's about that, exactly what you say, about that sort of, that conversation about putting it on your wall and talking about it. Well, and let's, let's dig back into the exhibition. Yeah. Since, Hannah, you have been there, um, I'd love to know some of your favorite pieces or what really got you thinking. Oh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I could have spent so many more hours there than I had, but I loved that, that feeling of the city that you were talking about, being able to kind of build the experience of walking through a city. I got that immediately. And the multimedia nature of the work that was on view, not just from the tapestry and the sculpture and the film, but also where you brought in kind of pushing the definition of what we would call art and artists in kind of very, you know, classic 
terms. So one of my favorite pieces was actually uh, the juxtaposition between a piece on, now I'm going to forget her name, I'm so sorry, this amazing woman who, who was the founder of the A to Z map. And Pearson. Oh, yeah. Pearson, which Sorry. Yeah. which I had not realized that that was invented by a woman. And that, I mean, if you think back before the age of iPhones, how we all, when we moved to the city, relied on that map every single day, several times a day. Yeah. And then this wonderful juxtaposition with Cornelia Parker, who's such a, I'm such a big fan of her work. She's such a hero for, to me. And her meteorite series, which you can see behind us here, where she's taken the A to Z map and then she's blown up various monuments like the Houses of Parliament or Buckingham Palace. And the, 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 that really stood out as kind of, I mean, there are so many pieces. Mona Hatoum's video piece, the exploration of the Matrix Collective and, and this group, amazing group of women who were dealing with issues of design and architecture in, in London. There were, there were so many highlights, but a personal favorite would be the, um, the meteorites. And. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Lubana, you can talk a little bit about some specific works that not address, but deal with the female gaze in the show. I don't think that's what I was trying to do. I think I was making a show that was about cities. There are very few of those artists are actually approaching the city as women. They're approaching the city as artists and they're seeing it, reinterpreting it, remembering it, imagining it as artists. I don't know what you think, Hannah, but in a way I don't think you would necessarily know as you wander around that exhibition that women have made that work. No, absolutely not, no. You know, it, I suppose I am dedicated to artists. You know, I've taught them all my life. They're my friends, you know, that's the world that I kind of function in. And so it was kind of important to me to make a show that opened up the idea of the city, because if we own it and feel good in it, whatever kind of city it is, then that opens it up for everyone else. I, I, would, I long for the city where I can send a little five-year-old girl to see her grandmother half a mile away and say, call me when you get there. So in a sense, those, those artists, whether it's Magda Stavaska thinking about Wuj and trying to hear violin music that is no longer played there or Jewish food that's no longer cooked there or synagogues that are no longer there, it's the memory of someone who didn't know the place thinking about why those people are not in that place anymore. With Lisa Milroy in Kyoto, quite a lot of the time she's thinking about paint rather than I am a woman in a particular city. I don't know, the most pressing question for me, which is ludicrous, I don't have teenage daughters and I, I, I've only looked after other people's daughters, but where do girls play? occupies me because I think girls are allowed to hang about in the mall in places where they might learn to buy things but not to have that kind of game playing of you know even football game or building stuff or hiding or you know all those I would say you almost never see three or four girls playing in the park together for me the project is about 
reclaiming spaces to make them universally accessible and playable with and places to have adventures in. Well, on that note, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Lubaina Hamid, Laura Elkin, and Hannah O'Leary. This has been a, a real pleasure and went way too fast. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season one, which features conversations with guests, including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live.